the Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Moni Amin, joined by my co-host, Dr. Meredith Trubit. And on tonight's shows, we're doing something a little different. We were recently invited to give a talk at Southern Hospital Medicine Conference in October on the things we do for no reason. This is a live recording, so we get straight into the case. If you'd like to follow along with Miss Becky's journey, please check out our show notes. But first, Meredith, will you please tell the good people in the audience what it is we do on this show? Sure, Moni. Did you know we are the Internal Medicine Podcast? We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. However, tonight we didn't interview anyone. It was just the two of us talking about some high-yield, patient-centric things we do for no reason. So thank you to Lenny Fellman and Tony Brew for letting us use the things we do for no reason tagline. Without further ado, should we do this episode for a reason? Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about Things We Do For No Reason, a patient-centered edition of Things We Do For No Reason. Uh, We're going to go through a few different things. And uh, like we just said, um, I'm Meredith Trubit. I'm Moni Amin. And please follow us on Twitter. We love that stuff. We have no relevant disclosures. And we'll go ahead and jump into our first case. Because we don't have the poll everywhere, we're going to do just like by hand raising. So uh, there's multiple answer choices, so I'm going to go through the slide or the question. So um, we got a patient today. Her name's Miss Becky, and um, she's a 69-year-old. She comes in with bright red blood per rectum, and all she really says is, Doc, it's a lot of blood. Um, she has past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, HEFPEF, and her pertinent labs when she comes in is that she has an h and that's 10 over 30, but we don't have a baseline. She's never been into our ER before. And the ER had already called GI and they're planning on maybe doing a scope. They call you to admit her to the hospital and you're doing your admission order set. So by a show of hands, what do you want as her diet on your admission order set? So option one, who wants a low sodium diabetic diet? Oh man, no hands. Okay. Who wants B, clear liquids? Okay, got a few. Got a few. Okay, C, NPO at midnight. Got a lot more. Um, Or D, who wants to just give her all the food? No one. How rude. B, okay. So I think the resounding popular answer was C, NPO at midnight. Yeah, we want people to starve, apparently. So that's great. You know, it's easy to scoff at the fact that we tend to starve our patients. Seems reasonable. But I think it's important to kind of step back and think about why it is that we feel like we need to do that. I'm going to quote a study, very recent study from 1946, in which they studied 66 pregnant patients who aspirated during delivery under general anesthesia. Two of these women had eaten a full meal six to eight hours prior, and they died. So this is the study we all turned to. We didn't know it, some of us. I didn't before we did this. Um, But that's actually the history of why it is that we do this to begin with. So the other part that gets lost in this, I think, is that that's a high-risk population. And the stuff we're going to talk to you about today is actually just low-risk populations. And we'll um, hopefully do a pretty good job of telling you what those high- and low-risk populations are. Yeah. Valid point. High-risk, low-risk, pros, cons. 
This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. And let me tell you about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions. These are going to help you communicate more confidently and reframe your words to be more positive and productive. So let's say, for instance, you're a Curbsiders co-host who self-identifies as a curmudgeon and maybe you tend to frame things a little bit negatively. Well, Grammarly is going to help you flip that with a more solution-focused communication. So instead of saying, this strategy isn't right, you're going to say, this strategy needs to be different. These little changes can make a big difference. And what I love about Grammarly is it's always giving me tips. Where do the commas go? Fixing my spelling errors, helping me rewrite sentences. I love it. It follows me all around the web. So I want you to check out Grammarly too, because the right tone can move any project forward when you get it just right with Grammarly. So go to Grammarly.com tone to download and learn more about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y.com slash tone. So what's one of the good things potentially about keeping someone NPO at midnight? They won't aspirate and die. So that's good. Uh, but the things that we really um, worry about, um, if you're thinking about this maybe from the other perspective, the other side, uh, electrolyte abnormalities, dehydration, and hypoglycemia, uh, all of which are bad news bears. Some of the practical implications of this, like, you know, in my QI work, we talk a lot about, like, is the problem actually a problem? And they've actually studied uh, how much people are kept in PO. So there's a study uh, from the Mayo Clinic in which they found that the median duration of NPO orders was 12.8 hours. Uh, 23.3% of the patients were uh, percent of the patients were completely avoidable NPO orders, and some of them were unavoidable. But bottom line is we are keeping them NPO longer than they need to be. Kind of picking, piggybacking off of that, I think the other interesting one that you and I have talked about in the past is kind of length of stay. And does, you know, putting someone NPO kind of increase their length, length of stay? And there's really no great studies on this question. Um, but there's one that's not totally applicable to medicine, but it at least is an interesting commentary that might be at least something to let sizzle in your head, I guess. Um, but there was, uh, in 2017, a bariatric surgery patient population, and their policy had instituted for a water ad-lib up to two hours um, preoperatively. And while they didn't show any statistically significant um, data, the trend was towards a decreased length of stay. And so it is hypothesized that possibly this also is impacting something as valid as length of stay. So brings us kind of to the next question. What can we do to think about reducing NPO time for patients? So we kind of mentioned this earlier. Uh, So low risk are the patients that most of us take care of. These are the specific situations in which people are considered high risk. Um, Gastroparesis, pregnancy, lower esophageal sphincter incompetence, and gastric or bowel obstruction. So things that hopefully we don't see too much of. So the vast majority of other patients would be considered low risk, which is hopefully what we kind of get to. And thinking about it from that perspective, the American Society of Anesthesiologists actually give us guidelines, which I love guidelines because I don't have to think about it. And this includes general, regional, and procedural anesthesia. Um, And it's pretty simple, guys. It's 2468. Who do we appreciate without the four, I guess? Um, so, uh, up until two hours before the procedure, you can get clear liquids, six hours, light toast. So 
toast and clears. And then eight hours, uh, you can go and get, you know, a nice steak dinner or something. Yeah. Sounds like you were watching Bring It On a little too much. Uh, so... Then I think the question is, is what is a clear liquid? I, I've always wondered what actually counts as a clear liquid. And I think I've actually been lying to my patients for a long time. And my residents. Yeah. So water, as we all know. Uh, Coke. Carbonated beverages. This was not a commercial. Uh, juice, but it has to be pulpless juice. So my dad would be very sad. And coffee. No cream, no sugar. So super jittery and nothing sweet. So as a recap to this part of this talk, um, I think the take home point for things we do for no reason is NPOs at midnight. We should really be reconsidering our patients that actually fall into a low risk category and who we could be giving them clears um, up to two hours before to lead to prevent some of these downside risks, such as the dehydration, hypoglycemia that can come with that. And, um, you know, only for kind of those higher risk populations, um, your gastroparesis patients or things like that, should you really be considering your MPOs at midnight? So with that, we'll um, continue with Miss Becky. Miss Becky looks sad. She does. She looks bummed. She's hungry. Yeah. So um, Miss Becky, she is now status poster EGD, um, and it showed a clean base ulcer. So she's hospital day two, and she, you come in and see her, and she's like, Doc, I have a little bit of lower extremity swelling, actually. And she's like, oh, and by the way, I ran out of my Lasix three days before I came into the hospital. This never happens, does it? Never. Only every day of my life. <laughs> and her physical, you also, you notice that she has two plus um, lower extremity edema and you do a much more thorough exam as well to notate all the other findings. Um, but her labs are really unrevealing. And just for the purpose of kind of where we're going to go, um, her imaging also showed no bilateral lower extremity DVTs. So now we're curious about kind of, again, show of hands, um, what fluid restriction would you choose for Miss Becky? So by a show of hands, who wants choice A, two liters? All right, it got uh, like five. Who wants choice B, one and a half liters? Like again, three to five. Um, who wants choice C, one liter? This is getting mean. Yeah, no one. And so I'm guessing... Everyone else wants the 800 milliliters? No? No? Okay. <laughs> so, s s sort of in between this two liter and one and a half liters, I guess. That's kind of where the group lies. Yeah. I guess since we're not doing this, anyone not want a fluid restriction? Oh, man. Okay. Three okay. or four. So, we're pretty split across those three. Yeah. All right. So, a little pattern here. We're going to go back to the history and why it is that uh, we do this. And I'll be honest, I didn't really look into the actual history, like a study, but I think about my very crude understanding of pathophys and crude is the only way to describe it. Uh, so if someone has heart failure and we're trying to get volume off, I think in my head, okay, well, if we just give them less fluid and then make them pee, then together it should be fine. Like that should really take care of everything. So that's how I think of it. And then uh, Meredith drew the short end of the stick and she has to tell you the real pathophys your brother's so disappointed. <laughs> Very disappointed. Um, Dr. Amin's brother is a nephrologist, so he lives and breathes this. He's so. going to be really excited that you just told him, told everyone that, yeah. that he's a thing. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about RAS pathway because it's going to make, I think it helped me kind of understand why we're going down this pathway a little bit. 
So when you're fluid restricting someone, um, you kind of start actually on the dehydration pathway um, in their RAS activation. And you're going to thereby like increase renin, um, angiotensin, aldosterone, and this will actually thereby increase sodium retention and could thereby therefore increase fluid retention as well. Um, so if your goal in like these patients is really to, you know, diurese them and get that fluid off, then it's possible that this pathway is suggesting that by doing all this extra fluid restricting, um, you're limiting what your overall ability is to do. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. I want you to think about somebody who has changed your life for the better. How incredible would it be if for your company, you could find more of those life-changing people right when you needed them? So if you're hiring, you need Indeed because they are the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You're not going to spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills because you're going to get that all with Indeed. They're going to help you find the top talent fast. We used Indeed at the Curbsiders to do some hiring in 2022, and the results were great. We got so many high-quality applicants, and we could sort through them right there on the platform, schedule the interviews. It made it really easy. It was a great experience, and I would definitely use them again. Indeed knows that hiring needs to be cost-effective when you're running your own business, and that's why with Indeed, you only pay for the quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Visit Indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Meredith, please, please tell us, what does the data show about this stuff? So I think out of all of the four different things that we're going to talk about today, this topic probably has some of the most data, I think. Um, So there's one study um, by Travers, and it's really the first randomized control trial for fluid restriction in acute decompensated heart failure. And what they did is they actually limited people to one liter, so even less than what anyone in this room wanted to do in one group. And then in the other group, they gave them a completely liberalized fluid uh, um, option for the hospitalized patient. And what they showed was there was actually no difference in duration or daily dose of IV diuretics, time to symptomatic improvement, total daily fluid output, or average hospitalization weight loss between the two groups. And notably, there's more patients who are actually withdrawn from the fluid restricted arm due to a rise in their creatinine, suggesting harm, although that wasn't statistically significant. And um, but it's a small study, so it's sort of like, you know, how how valuable is this? Well, I don't know, but I gotta say, one liter seems pretty aggressive, and I can't say that I've ever done it because, again, it seems pretty aggressive, not very nice. But it's not statistically significant necessarily. It seems like you know, aggressive food restrictions maybe not the best of plans. Yeah. So I've actually never done this either, but I will say I recently had a patient on service who had been instructed to do this like as an outpatient. And when he told me about it, my jaw dropped because I was like, oh, my God, aren't you thirsty all the time? (laughs) Did you tell him not to do it? No, I was too scared. I was too scared. All right. So following with the Travers study, then there was another one by Aliti um, in their group. And they were like, guys, one liter was not enough. 
So we need to restrict them even more and do 800 milliliters. That is beyond mean. Yeah. And again, what they did is they were comparing the two groups to a completely liberalized diet. And again, they show there's no difference in the weight loss, use of diuretics, or rehospitalization between the study arms. And theirs did show a statist statistically significant increase in perceived thirst values um, that they measured kind of as a quality um, standpoint for the two groups. And so while that's not always like the most clinically significant um, measure, we're talking about something that we're not overly sure has that much benefit and now is making your patient uncomfortable as well. So it kind of feels like not awesome. Definitely not awesome. And also not patient-centered, which is what we're going for. And that's a theme that you'll kind of notice uh, as we go along, actually. So to recap, fluid restriction, don't do it. It's not a good plan. Um, and actually, it might be contributing to worsening the RAS activation system and uh, just making the problem even worse. So yeah, that's a bad plan. All right. Miss Becky, Miss Becky just looks more and more sad. Yeah. I don't know. Why are we doing this to her? I don't know. She's like, get me out of this hospital. So it's <laughs> hospital day three. And the nurse comes in with the AM meds. And Miss Becky, she wants to talk to her doctor before she takes this anoxaparin shot, which just got ordered because we've confirmed she's not bleeding. And so just out of curiosity, what is your current practice regarding VTE chemical prophylaxis in low-risk patients. Is it, are you guys into A? It's the order set, so I'm going to do it. Is it B? I'm oh, sorry, A, any takers? I saw a couple hands. Don't be shy. Yeah. It's okay to admit it. Order sets are a thing. Uh, B, it should never be ordered. <laughs> <laughs> and anyone for C, you should talk to your patient about it before you order it. All right, a few more. Got some panderers here. Yeah, I love it. Well, again, we're going to do the why. And the history of the why in this situation, or really just like the reason that I think a lot of us do, um, VTEs account for up to 5 to 10% of hospital deaths. I should point out that we don't know if all of those VTEs were uh, developed in the hospital. It's very possible that the patients had them when they came in. And appropriately, we do not screen every single patient for VTE. Um, but, you know, there's no real way to know. But in the vein of not wanting to do harm. Such a good pun. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you know, you're rubbing off on me and I do not like it. Uh Anyways, it seems like we have swung the pendulum way too far in favor of chemoprophylaxis, even in lower patients. And I think we all kind of know some of this is a little bit guideline-driven, quality measures-driven um, kind of stuff. So just kind of keeping that in mind. So we're going to pull the room um, here. So um, in y'all's hospital systems, wherever you're working, do you use a scoring system to risk stratify um, who warrants VT uh, chemoprophylaxis? So by a show of hands, who does? Uh, three. Okay. Who does not? All right. That's way more. So I think that was probably like eight to ten. Who has no idea? <laughs> we appreciate the honesty. Yeah, I got to um, say that I had to think about it for a second. Yeah. Um, so I think the resounding winner was no's, followed by I'm not sure's, and then the lowest were yes that they do use one. 
So um, one of the uh, common ones that you can use, um, and I don't know what you guys are using in y'all's hospital systems, but is the Padua, which we have up on the screen right now. One of the things actually that is very striking about the Padua is just how easy it is to get to your score of four to warrant prophylaxis, especially when you think about who's coming into the hospital. A lot of us have patients who are coming in who are already over the age of 70 and how many of you have active cancer? So that already gets you, you know, your four points. So it is a fair amount of patients that may not meet that low risk category scoring less than four. Um, but it's also possible that you do have someone who's, I don't know, like Miss Becky, right? And she's less than 70. Somehow. Yeah. And she doesn't have any cancer or other things. And so I think her score is really a three. And so that's someone who might fall into that low risk category. All right. So there's some not great things um, about giving uh, a VTE prophylaxis to low uh, potential downsides, I guess, to giving people prophylaxis when they maybe are lower risk than you would worry about. So, obviously, pain shots kind of stink. There's obviously blood involved. Uh, it costs, and I'll come back to that here in a second. And then I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, shout out to all the intermed student, all of us for hit. So, you know, it's very exciting when you get to diagnose that. Have you ever diagnosed hit? Way back in the day when I was in training, <laughs> which wasn't actually that far. far. Yeah, once. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I think I got to order the test once, but it didn't come back positive. Okay. And um, again, I'll come back to the cost here in a second. But the most fun fact of all of this is that shots are, enoxaparin shots are the most refused medication in the hospital. And it's not even close. Like, I remember it was like at least double the next or whatever. So, I mean, we don't always make decisions, you know, because of a, because of patient's comfort. But in this situation, there's enough risks, I think, that it should be something that you think may be a little harder than we always do. And I mentioned that I would talk a little bit more about cost. So, they, you know, we've, I think in all the talks that we've been seeing the last couple of days, cost of healthcare is not the most transparent thing. So these studies are a few and far between, but they've seen, they've seen, shown studies where over $75,000 a year are spent unnecessarily on the cost of just the enoxaparin. Uh, this does not account for any of the shenanigans that come after that. So if you get enoxaparin and you get a bleed, that's not counted in this. If you get an oxaparin and get cellulitis from the injection site, injection site, it's not counted in this. So it's interesting. Doesn't count all of the unnecessary hit orders either. Okay, fine. That's actually probably the most expensive <laughs> if we're being honest. Okay, well. So one of the things that's come up and is like actually recently come out too in um, the hospital medicine um, recommendations was really that this should in your low risk patients be a patient centered conversation that we're having. Um, so if they really are falling into that low risk category to go and say, you know, we can do this, but you know, our goal is to reduce, you know, your VT risk potentially. Is this something that you're agreeable to? Is this something that you are worried about? Um, because Oftentimes, sometimes those patients are the ones that are up walking about. They may not see a value to it. And instead of getting into the fight the next day and spending a lot of time having that conversation, then you could just do it up front. So in summary, to kind of recap, 
things we do for no reason, VT prophylaxis and low risk patients, probably something that we could have a patient centered conversation about more often. Yeah. You know, I think what I didn't, I hadn't thought very hard about this before, but recently I've been thinking about all the things that we do to patients that we never tell them we're going to do. And this is probably really near the top of the list of things that like definitely is not great and potentially very uncomfortable for them. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's good to keep this in mind um, and talk to your patients about it instead of the, the morning surprise. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. And you know, when you're at your best, you can do great things, but sometimes life just gets you bogged down and you may feel overwhelmed or like you're just not showing up in a way that you want to. And in our job as clinicians, we want to show up because we have really important work we're doing and sometimes people's lives are on the line. I know that therapy has helped me a lot. I have used BetterHelp and it was really easy and it finally got me over that hump. I was worried about the stigma of being in therapy. I was worried about how to sign up, going into an office, but with BetterHelp, it was easy because I could do it all online. They made it easy to change therapists. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option because it's convenient, it's flexible, affordable, and as I said, entirely online. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch anytime for no additional charge. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com curb today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash curb. So we'll come back to Miss Becky, who's just getting more and more agitated at this point. I mean, those eyes say everything. Yeah. Just, she looks miserable. I don't blame her, to be honest. Um, so at this point, Miss Becky, she's feeling much better. You know, we found she had the clean base ulcer on her EGD, um, and she's not having any more bleeding. Um, we've diuresed her. She's doing much better. She opted out of doing VT prophylaxis because, frankly, she's over it at this point. Um, and she's now just got put on all of her oral medications. And so she's tentatively planned to go home the next day if she's tolerating all of the oral meds all right. So at this stage of her mission, does she warrant overnight vital signs monitoring? So we got four options. So by a show of hands, who would pick yes? Every four hours, vital signs for anyone who's admitted to the hospital. How many of you are not raising your hands, but this is what you order? I think we should have put the order set thing in yeah. again. <laughs> um, all right. So who would pick B? Yes, it's easier for the nurses if they know they have to check on everyone. Oh, I some honesty. Thank you. And I mean, that's interdisciplinary thinking. Yeah. Um, C, no, she's low risk for decompensation. All right. Maybe halvesies. Um, or D, I, I'm not sure. I've never once thought about my vital signs ordering practice. I, I honestly think when we were writing the question, that was the answer choice we came up with first. <laughs> it was A. <laughs> yeah. um, um, just let me, let me get a pause for a second, Meredith. Okay. okay. I've been expressing a lot of concern for Miss Becky, right? So we've starved her. We've water deprived her. We've stabbed her. And now we're talking about sleep deprivation. Stabbing aside, I feel like we might be just talking about a resident. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Actually, we didn't tell everyone what her profession is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
All right. She's 69. <laughs> I guess people can dream. Yeah. So a little background on like vital signs, kind of like we've done for the other three topics. So why do we do it? Um, it's in the name. Yeah. <laughs> vital signs are vital you know at a time when we didn't have a whole lot of other information to help us navigate objective information about our patients we've always kind of had vital signs to navigate with and so I think there's an inherent fear for all of us if we're not checking them because that's just always there and it just is frankly a comfort to us right to know that you had that objective data at whatever time yeah we don't like surprises no um we could we could poll everyone in the room and see who's type A, but I'm pretty sure everyone would raise their hand. It's a spectrum. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things we've been talking about the last couple of sections is the role of risk stratification. And as far as I know, really aren't some great, great studies and scoring systems for um, vital sign decision-making. Uh, but I think you, you found some pretty interesting points um, just to consider when we're thinking about this in particular. Yeah. So I think in terms of studies and support on this topic, this was probably the most sparse. Um, but there are some interesting examples. So there's a couple of studies that looked at kind of an interdisciplinary role for nurses doing a nurse-driven protocol to decrease vital sign monitoring, especially overnight. Um, and essentially, all they would do is the nurses walk in when they do their evening rounds, like when they go and meet the patients and whatnot, and they eyeball them. And they say, this patient does not need vital signs tonight. And um, in those studies, they actually did not show any increase in ICU transfers. Um, they didn't show any increase like um, rates of decompensation for those patients either. And so it sort of suggests that, you know, maybe this is an avenue we could pursue in thinking about ways to um, decrease our vital sign checks, especially overnight. And I think the other thing that you and I were talking about, because um, for the people in the room who know me well, know that I'm a little detail-oriented at times. And so... I would have never said, described that. Yeah. That's not the description I would provide. <laughs> so... Um, and thinking about that, if you are really thinking about how many vital sign checks you're taking away when you let someone sleep, if you're doing Q4 on the floor, which is probably what you're doing, you're really only taking away one, right? You're probably taking away that 2 a.m. midnight time and letting them sleep until like the morning. And so in terms of overall objective data, you're still getting an overall trend for what's happening to that patient. You're really only subtracting one data point over a total of six down to five or four down to three, but you would still have that information. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever thought of it that way. And that just one, it's not really that many. Right. And so, and your patients, I think would appreciate the opportunity to sleep. And that's something that I think in a way we might have some say over. I think the last point, which um, actually dovetails to nicely to one of the earlier talks today, but was, um, a little bit on kind of where are we in talking about technology and continuous monitor systems that could be set up into the patient's room that would be providing all of this, but wouldn't require waking up your patients to do that check. So um, the question to that, though, is if we're really talking about low-risk patients, which is really what we're talking about here, um, are those types of continuous monitors really necessary for patients? And is that technology that might, that's not necessarily in existence now in the hospital, but maybe in upcoming years, something that we really need? Um, or is that still providing too many data points? They're having too much fun next door. 
Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see how much the mic picked up of that when I go back to edit. So yeah, it's gonna be real awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I I think this is like you alluded to this um, the talk from earlier this morning. Just because we have the technology, do we always need to be using it? You know, and I think in this situation, it seems you know like the patients. Telly's a great example, right? Like we have patients that are on telly or on their step down and they're on continuous pulse ox. And sometimes we maybe forget to turn off their telly when they don't need it, whatever. But like, just because we have it doesn't mean we necessarily need to use it. And being mindful of that, I think helps obviously with the patient's comfort and also, you know, cost conscious care and things like that. So I think we're here to re- ready to recap this, the uh, sleep dep- Sorry, over, overnight <laughs> vital sign monitoring. Nice Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> to recap, uh, sleep deprivation is bad. Waking patients up is not a good plan. Um, it, it, it's not fun. And if they don't need it, they don't need it. So I think really the overarching theme here is to think about, you know, engaging with the other staff and, and being mindful of how frequently you're ordering them and take every patient as a single patient and like make the decision based on that patient and not all the other ones that you're admitting. So let's go back and kind of wrap up with Miss Becky. So Meredith, she's crying. Yeah, I would be too. (laughs) This is terrible. What have we done? I don't know. I mean, we've, like you already said, you know, we've done all the things to Miss Becky. um, And I think that it's a really good opportunity to remember there are plenty of things that we can do to our patients in the hospital, which really affect their care and their experience. But maybe some of these are things we do for no reason. And those are things that maybe we could not do as much, especially to patients that fit into these low risk categories and maybe make their time in the hospital a little bit more bearable. So had we been a little bit more mindful for Miss Becky, maybe we could turn her frown Upside down. <laughs> I've been practicing practicing this in my mind for the whole week. Yeah. Um, for the people that are listening, uh, Miss Becky was frowning and sad, and now she is smiling after that dramatic pause. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll take any questions or comments. And before we do that, a couple thank yous. Lenny Feldman, who very generously allowed us to use things we do for no reason, the Choose and Wisely trademark. Uh, both uh, VA Hospital Medicine and Medical Education for witnessing or talking and us feedback and Dr. Malik, who also gave us great feedback and Caroline Coleman. Miss Becky would not have come to life without Caroline Coleman's wonderful graphics and she's sitting right here in the front row. Um, so yeah, good on her and questions. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpace. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media and Stuart Brignum composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Moni Amin. And I've been Meredith Trubit. Thank you and good night.